0: Hey everyone, before we get into it today, just want to give a quick shout out to this season's sponsor Rook close to a billion dollars worth of MEV has been taken out of users pockets. And that's just on Ethereum. And that number is only getting larger, unfortunately. Rook thinks that it's time for a change, and they've built a solution which is going to automatically redirect that MEV back to where it belongs into your, the user's pocket. So you're going to be hearing all about them later in the show. I'm a huge fan of this team and what they're building, so stay tuned to find out more. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Today, unfortunately, uh, Hasu is not with us. He's doing some enjoying some well-deserved vacation, but we're going to do our best to to hold around without him here. Uh, And I'm joined um, to talk about MEV on on the Cosmos, Uh, and today I'm joined by Barry Plunkett of Skip Protocol and Henry DeValance of Benumbra. Guys, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having us, Michael.
0: Um, So maybe before we dive in, I would love if you guys could just give a quick 30-second intro of who you both are and the projects that you're working on, and maybe, Barry, I can call on you to start.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, My name is Barry Plunkett. I'm one of the co-founders of Skip. We build a variety of uh, mev infrastructure and protocols for cosmos blockchains in particular and 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 app chains and uh roll-ups in general to try to help them regain and maintain control over their mev supply chains and make decisions about what kinds of mev can and can't be extracted and how and who extracts it and where that revenue goes um, so my name is henry Um, I'm the founder of uh,
2: Penumbra, so Penumbra is uh, building uh, uh, shielded decks and also uh, an interchain privacy layer, Um, and what's interesting about it is it's sort of also an experiment to see like, like what is like one possible point in the like design space of useful blockchains with privacy um not trying to start with like here's this like fully general thing but what's this like one specific application trading where privacy has some kind of real world quantifiable value to the product um and then generalizing from that what lessons you can learn for you know what should the future of privacy blockchains be excellent guys thanks thanks very much now Maybe, maybe just to kick things
0: off, as, as I mentioned before, and as listeners to previous episodes in the season will know, we've largely been exploring MEV through the perspective of an Ethereum native or how MEV gets done on Ethereum. Maybe Barry, I could call on you first here. I know that at one point you were a searcher in, in Ethereum, and I know that some of the philosophical differences that you had uh, with how MEV was being pursued on Ethereum made you move to, to Cosmos. So Maybe if you could just fill us in with that backstory and what made you um, kind of start building Skip.
1: So I, I did used to search in Ethereum back in 2020, 2021. Uh, I I had brief periods of time where I was quite successful with my co-founder and probably longer periods of time where I was less successful or getting out-competed. Uh, but I... The, the experience uh, of searching there, well, on one hand, I think really impressed me with just like the f- sophistication uh, and the depth of the MEV supply chain on Ethereum in terms of uh, the number of different kinds of actors who are participating in the space and uh, just the lengths that they're going to try to squeeze out as much MEV as possible as as, as they can. Uh, but we got pretty disillusioned with what we were seeing just in terms of uh, the ecosystem progressively moving in that direction of maximal extraction all the time as the guiding philosophy. I think from our perspective, it's it's something that made a lot of sense for Ethereum. Uh, it's a massively decentralized community that and the protocol itself can be very hard to change both socially and technically given how much value uh, is being secured by it at all times and how many people are building huge variety of different things on top of it but we thought that there was an opportunity to explore the MEV design space from a very different perspective where instead of saying okay uh, because we have this decentralized community we and because we have this relatively static protocol we have to evolved in the direction of trying to create a fully off-chain supply chain for MEV extraction that uh, has no guiding principle beyond we should try to maximize extraction and we should try to democratize our ability to do that. We we thought there was a lot of opportunities to be more opinionated, especially, you know, some of the stuff that upset us early on was a lot of the front-running and sandwich stuff that we were seeing. I mean, we didn't do any of that ourselves and I come from a traditional finance background. And so seeing that, it looked like market manipulation and it it didn't look like the kind of thing that legally i I would be willing or excited to do and so we set off to look for other places where we could uh explore what MEV infrastructure could look like and we found cosmos where a lot of these uh a lot of these constraints that the Ethereum ecosystem has of of having massive decentralization having to support tens of thousands of, of validators running on commodity hardware having a very uh inflexible protocol layer it didn't exist and you had people running really cool experiments about you know how they were building all the different layers of the stack from uh consensus all the way up through uh how smart contracts work and the things smart contracts are and aren't allowed to do and how accounts work and so we we found a home there for what we call sovereign uh which we can we can get into more but at a high level is the protocol should be opinionated and the protocol can be opinionated about how MEV works. Uh, and, and we want to try to build tooling that, that helps them express those opinions.
0: Yeah, that's that's a super helpful explanation. And I want to just bookmark this idea of sovereign MEV and the idea of having an opinion on MEV for a discussion about uh, cross-domain uh, MEV later. But, you know, two of the design principles that, that I've heard you talk about, Barry, that are in Ethereum, both are concerned with the validator and they're kind of polar opposite in in Cosmos, at least from my perspective currently. So I feel like kind of the two points that the MEV supply chain on Ethereum are optimized for is commoditizing the validator um, and paying the validator as much money as possible. Basically making sure all of those funds flow to the validator for the security budget of Ethereum, but also making sure that no validator you know, from a large pool or something like that can have an advantage over the little guy per se. And in Cosmos, it's it can be very different, right? So you hear this coming from Osmosis quite a bit, but there's kind of this mentality of what can your validator do for you? Because one of the key differences in Cosmos is validators run consensus, so kind of tendermint consensus, but also the application code as well. So can you just kind of unpack that difference and maybe the design space that that opens up for sovereign protocols?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh it's a that's a it's a great question. So when I to to go back to your point, it, it seems like, at least from an outsider's perspective, that the design of Ethereum's MEV supply chain, especially focused on PBS and MevBoost, was largely uh largely built to try to maximize extraction and at the same time like minimize the required intelligence and participation of validators in that extraction. So like Builders and relayers take responsibility for coming up with valuable blocks and forwarding them to the validator and ensuring that they are uh, okay and, and, and uh, that they extract as much as possible. And all the validator does is it just like signs some blinded header and says, trust the relayer that they've done a good job simulating things and picking the highest block from their set of builders. And that's um, that's to your point, because you need to support tens of thousands of commodity validators there. For Cosmos chains, for listeners who aren't familiar, you have a very different validator set. You know, On most chains, you have somewhere between 100 to 150 on the high-end uh, validators in the active voting set. And these validators are also pretty sophisticated operators. They often validate 10, 20, 30 different Tendermint blockchains. They're often staffed run by people who have half a decade a decade of devops experience who can sort of tell you what's going on with their node just, just by like a quick peek at a grafana dashboard and so these these people are, are are pretty sophisticated and a lot of protocols ask them to do things that you might not want to ask an ethereum valid you might not want to ask an ethereum validator or, or all ethereum validators to do so Axelar is a great example of this to participate uh on Axelar as a validator you need to run nodes for other chains that Axelar is connected to. It's how Axelar functions as a cross-chain bridge is it requires validators to participate in these like voting committees. And so that's that's an idea that other Cosmos chains take to uh, apply that to the MEV supply chain. So imagine uh, rather than having Ethereum validators always just be dumb recipients of a bid in an auction, that they could actually say, run an auction themselves, or they could you know, compute some, some routes in a DEX that might be built into the protocol that would allow them to capture cyclic arbitrage themselves, Thing, things like that. So generally, uh, taking this idea of a very dumb validator and flipping it on its head and saying, okay, like we already require our validators to not be dumb, and we already have some vetting from the community and from our from the core dev team, that these validators are aligned long term with the health and the goals of the protocol, that we should ask them to to do a little more, and oftentimes you have actually used the rules of consensus to ensure that they're they're fulfilling those additional roles in the MEV supply chain in the way that you might want them to. Um, so I I don't know I don't know if I fully answered your your question there, but I think a lot of this comes from this place of saying. One, our validators are like socially aligned with us for the long term. We already trust them to represent the community in governance, which which plays a very, very significant role in Cosmos. I don't know how significant it is in Ethereum, um, but in Cosmos, governance decides where chains spend their money. It decides when, when upgrades happen to the protocol, what upgrades are and aren't allowed to happen, and broadly what the developers prioritize on their roadmap. Um, so we're already trusting them. And so why don't we... And we're requiring them to do more in a lot of different ways. So why don't we extend those same ideas to MEV and to try to make MEV within the bounds of our protocol? The same way, you know, we we have what transaction type is within the bounds of our protocol, or like when finalization happens, or you know, what specific version of Tendermint we're using is all that's that's all up to the chain. Um, and and so we just try to take those ideas and apply them to the MEV supply chain. That's you, you did answer my question perfectly there, and I think it is like a, a big
0: difference. Sort of just observing the the perspective of MEV and Ethereum versus Cosmos is in MEV on Ethereum, the protocol is taken as a set thing, whereas in Cosmos, my observation is that oftentimes the protocol is actually thought of as sort of a stakeholder, and that MEV value chain and parameters can be changed. Uh in order to give the user a a more desirable experience, so maybe Henry, this is a good sort of segue to to you here as a as the leader of a of an app chain. I would love to kind of hear some of your design principles um and maybe if you could just touch i know we're gonna talk quite a bit about privacy later, but if you could just touch on some of the you know privacy driven user experiences um that you can sort of start to create on penumbra
2: yeah um so one thing that's kind of interesting about about ConumbrA is that um, we've sort of like walked backwards into MEV, um, in that we didn't, you know, like unlike Barry, I didn't start out oh, doing like searching on Ethereum or something. I started out actually doing like zk infrastructure, like you know, uh, how do you build private stuff? I was working in Zcash, and the sort of origin story for ConumbrA comes from a very different place of like how do you build a like a a project that has privacy in it that people are going to use because it's better and not just because it's like a private x and that ends up intersecting with MEV through this angle of like um you know if you're not disclosing information about your activity then other people can't be exploiting that um So Conumbra looks quite different than I think most other chains um, because it has this extra dimension of uh, which data is private and which data isn't. One of the insights that we had through thinking about this problem of, okay, what does it mean to build a, a private DEX? Once you've zoomed in on that, it's like, okay, here's an initial use case. What does that even mean? Does that mean like make, literally everything private like run everything inside of snarks like don't disclose anything at any time to anyone no because it turns out that's not actually useful if you look around at pretty much any useful blockchain the reason that it's useful the reason that it's valuable is because of its uh, shared public state right like the reason that ethereum is so valuable is not because of like all of the like great technical decisions that were made in 2014. It's because it has this like accumulated mass of like users and state that can all be interacted with. And so, the challenge for building something that's private is like okay, once you've added this new kind of design access of um, what information is disclosed to whom, how do you manage the interaction between the kind of public shared state and the private per user state because what you you don't actually want sort of everything to be private what i want is to actually it's almost like recovering the same privacy story as like TradFi, where like somebody can't like log on to my brokerage account and build a dashboard my P L. that's insane um but also keeping the the benefits of DeFi where you have this kind of like real-time transparency of the aggregate state of the system, you have real-time accounting on all of the system invariants. How do you keep that for the aggregate pieces but pertain, you know, privacy for each individual user's contribution to that overall shared state? And so for Penibra, we've ended up with an architecture that has like a pretty explicit segmentation between here's the kind of public aggregate state and here's the private per user state. Um, and that puts us in a pretty different position, um, relative to, uh, a lot of other chains. just in like sort of, you know, how is this thing put together? Um, and so for, for the, just coming back to the original question, um, for the MEV context, I think it's kind of interesting because it's very um, currently very uh, specialized, like fixed functionality, you know, it does a DEX, that's it um, for the moment. But in that narrow scope, there's this kind of like end-to-end idea of, of protocol design, right? Like, like one kind of, you know, personal opinion is I, I sort of hate the term like MEV supply chain Because to me, it feels like, okay, that's just like protocol design, right? Like what you're talking about, what people talk about when they talk about the MEV supply chain is like, what is the whole like, you know, sequence of steps between, uh, you know, an end user's intent and then like tracing their actions as they're affected on the system as the user learns about them. But like, that's actually just like the protocol. Right, like the, the protocol doesn't stop at the edge of the full node battery. It sh- you should think of it in this kind of holistic way as going all the way out to the user. And I guess the sort of meta perspective that I have there is that like it in some ways in that if you I, I wouldn't say that I'm like really like part of the Ethereum community, but as my outsider perspective on it, is that the sort of the ossification at the like base layer like drives all of the innovation um into okay, it has to have a different label because then you know it can be a thing that people can can build and evolve and change over time, but really that just is the ethereum protocol right I I'm in agreement with you, Henry, on that I think it's been very
0: difficult this season in trying to be focused on MeV it's been pretty wildly difficult actually to parse out what is MeV versus exactly what you just said what is protocol design i I'd love to maybe, uh, kind of try to parse out from what you were saying. The, the other thing that really resonated with me is, you know, where sometimes I think about from the Ethereum perspective, people tend to think about economics. For instance, if you read something like Dan Elitzer's The Unichain is Inevitable, people tend to talk about MEV in sort of economic extraction type terms. Whereas my experience with talking about app chain uh, lead, uh, developers or sort of Cosmos in general is actually building it into the user experience. So could you help translate, Henry, some of the design of Penumbra into a better experience for users of the DEX?
2: Yeah. So I guess like one example is um, on on Penumbra, the DEX runs uh, on on a kind of frequent batch auction style model. Um, And part of that is for technical reasons um, about how do you have interaction between public and private state um it's a lot easier if you do that as as part of a batch because um you know if you think about you know somebody submits a trade on uniswap right when they sign that transaction and submit it they're not also signing over like and here the exact state of the reserves of the uniswap contract and therefore this is the exact amount of output that i get right like there's this kind of late binding where when that trend that that transaction is formed has like here's the slot that gets filled in by the chain state and then when i send it to the network then it actually gets executed but in a private context the way that you achieve privacy on a blockchain is by moving all of the execution off chain onto the end user device and having them submit like here's a proof of this new state that i've constructed and so in doing that, you lose the ability to have this kind of like late binding property, uh, and to recover it, you have to move to this like asynchronous model where like oh I'm going to make a swap and I'll somehow sort of freeze the state of my uh, you know the, the swap that I'm trying to make, and then later the, the chain will figure out what the execution price was, and I'll be able to like resume that computations. So, and so once you're in that kind of async model, it's just much easier to think about it in a, a, a batched way. Um, so that's kind of the technical, you know, weeds of, of why we did that. But there's also, I think, this like pretty powerful and intuitive kind of economic argument, which is: look, if you think about what a blockchain is doing, it's coming to consensus on transactions, right? And it comes to consensus on transactions in batches. And we call the patches blocks for basically historical reasons. Um, So why is it that we have economic mechanisms on the chain that assume a kind of like finer notion of time or causality than you're actually getting out of the underlying consensus mechanism, right? Well, once you do that, then of course, there's this kind of like bullshit mechanical arbitrage race to like, oh, I got to be at the top of the block because that's how I'm gonna like, you know, get at this mechanism. But, you know, if you have a, a mechanism that has like consensus in Dashes, then your economic mechanisms should also be operated at like the same kind of time resolution. Uh, and, uh, you know, we we took that to heart for for Penumbra, and so as a result, we don't really have any like meaningful notion of like intra-block ordering. Um, you know, technically you can go to the block and say like, look, the transactions were in this order, but all of the meaningful, uh, execution is happening in batches. Um, and so it doesn't really matter, uh, as a user, you know, at what position in the block was my transaction included either, you know, if I'm making a swap, it's going to get executed in a batch and I'll get a common clearing price, or if I'm doing liquidity provision, Um, we process all of the, you know, we have this like phased execution process for the decks where it's like, okay, go open all the newly opened positions, like, uh, execute all the swaps, like, arm everything back to consistent prices, close all the the positions that were requested to be closed. And so it's kind of this like stepwise, like batched execution for each of those different participants. And so, at that point the the only like real sort of block producer choice is just like do I include something in a block or not and the um that even you know without having any privacy, having that that mechanism design I think really changes what the m e v uh landscape looks like because you know, not, not only do you, are you just only able to control, like, what does this, like, is this transaction going to go on a block or not? But because all of the mechanisms are, are operating batches, the marginal effect of including that transaction or not on the overall outcome is, you know, like one out of N you know, by like whatever the like size of the, like if you have some giant whale transaction then including it or not maybe makes a a bigger difference but as a you know if I'm a normal user making a normal size trade somebody is doing block reduction and choosing like should I you know include this transaction or censor it that choice has a pretty marginal effect on the overall economic outcome of that block and so I think that that really like cuts down a lot of the like um you know, sort of classical MEV where it's, you know, MEV where the block producer actually has some kind of structural privileged position to exploit, um, uh, extract value. Um, and that's, that's something that kind of comes from having this sort of like fully batched,
1: um, design. So we, we don't work with Penumbra, full disclosure, uh, though we wouldn't wouldn't mind doing that uh we we work with a lot of the other dexes in cosmos that that make meaningfully different trade-offs and design decisions uh not just around ordering and inclusion but also by extension right like the value proposition that they're trying to offer to users and, and to builders on their chain so one of the folks that we work very closely with is the osmosis core team and the community there and um Osmosis is very different than Penumbra insofar as they have uh, they have Uni V2 style pools and concentrated liquidity style pools, and, and soon we'll have an order book uh, provided by Astroport and you know, some some lending protocols through through Mars that uh, do actually have significance for transaction ordering. So uh, on Osmosis uh, decks you know, if you're uh, if you're the first transaction in a block, you're going to have a different operating against a pool. You're going to have a different price than the second or the third in the same way you might with Ethereum. Um, and when we talk to the community and the, and the core team there, that's something that they view as uh, important right now for uh, composability reasons. That uh, having having that uh, transaction level granularity allows Folks who are building on that chain to uh, build smart contracts and sort of extend the platform in ways that uh, you can have transaction by transaction interlocking and interaction might be more difficult or might just look very different in a in a protocol that's more focused on on privacy. so when when but when we work with them, they've they still want the protocol to try to be opinionated about trying to recapture some of the value that leaks. From user transactions as a result so um, one of the one of the biggest sources of mev in ethereum because transaction ordering matters there and and also on osmosis for the same reason is uh is atomic arbitrage and back running so you know a, a whale comes and makes a large swap against some kind of pool pushes the price of one token to be very high and then that creates an opportunity where a trader can trade against a set of three pools that have some overlapping assets that then rebalances the prices of all of them. So, uh, and and this happens potentially because instead of it happening sort of at, at the end of a of a block uh, because prices be different, this happens potentially every transaction. So, but the the Osmosis community sees this, and they saw this as an opportunity to try to create a new source of revenue for the chain. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to say, okay, we, we want the protocol to try to recapture some of this MEV from back running. We don't want to front run users. So we, we don't want to force people, force the whale to pay their worst price possible uh, and then take the money from them. But after they've paid whatever price they'll pay as a result of using uh, their front end router, then they wanted the protocol to come in and see, to actually check the protocol itself to check rather than a searcher whether there are any back-running opportunities and, and to to capture them. So we built a module for them, which is basically an extension of the chain's application logic called ProtoRev, which is short for Protocol Revenue because we're bad at naming things, uh, that does this, right? That takes a look at a few uh, potential cyclic arbitrage routes after every swap and then flash mints tokens to capture an opportunity if it sees one and flash burns those tokens and then returns that money to the community pool. Um, and we talked with a lot of people on Osmosis about this decision uh, of saying, OK, well, like we could build this. This could actually just be like a, a router that maybe gives some users better prices as opposed to the coming in and back running them. It could be, uh, you know, a, a service that we run sort of just as an auction for off-chain searchers. And the, the thing that we heard from the community was we want this. We want we actually what we care about right now is not giving users in the short term better prices but is, but is creating more value for the community and we think that there are other ways we're going to improve routing for users later on so we want to we want to do this um so we went ahead and and, and built that out for them and it's interesting like we got a lot of pushback from people in ethereum when we were doing this they were like oh like the protocol shouldn't do anything like searching like there's no way those algorithms are so complicated like it'll never run in protocol like it'll be so gas inefficient like how is this ever going to work and then we were like i don't know like we'll see uh and we we actually did a bunch of data analysis initially and we realized the vast majority of of cyclic arbitrage was from like four routes on osmosis like the vast vast majority 80 90 percent And all of it basically settled to Osmo or Atom, which the community obviously loved because those are the tokens that they want to hold. Um, And it was very easy to build using the tools of app chains into the protocol, a way where we can say, okay, like we're just going to check these routes. We're also going to have some mechanism by which we can maybe add new routes, which is potentially interesting. Um, And we're going to, every block we're going to have like gating to ensure that, okay, if, if actually like somebody tries to grief this and they submit a bunch of really tiny swaps or they, you know, somehow like there's just, osmosis blows up there's thousands of transactions again everybody's printing money it's a bull market like we have circuit breakers that just turn it off uh in in case there's there's issues with that and very very conservative with how much computation we put in the protocol and even still like it's recapturing tens of thousands of dollars a month for the community uh, on on a pretty small number of transactions and they can upgrade that to say actually we want to give the users back that money they can upgrade that to say okay we want to pay validators who Um, you know are are running these expensive machines or they can they can just say hey we want to give that money back to LPs so that's one of the really nice things about Cosmos about using the tools of consensus in the way Henry's been talking about is that now the community actually gets to decide what the hell we're going to do with this revenue uh, or what the hell we're going to do with the protocol instead of it just being purely a question of all right like who is who is paying the validator the most as a bribe or who's the fastest or whatever it might be now we've sort of brought that into the design decision and then people can users can vote with their feet right they can say okay i want privacy so i'm going to go to penumbra or i i actually think that this frequent batch auction mechanism is better for me it makes more sense i'm going to go to penumbra or they can say ah you know i i I know osmosis i'm going to stay here you know whatever it might be people people can actually developers can make choices based on what they think their users want and users can make explicit choices about how they want not just MEV but to Henry's point like the entire spectrum of the user experience of participating in the blockchain to work. Um, so I think meV is like one part of this and and app chain developers are very concerned about this whole experience because they can be like you can't build what Henry's building in ethereum and, <laughs> and have the same tools at your disposal so why? Why would you have an opinion about how transactions get ordered? You're like, well, that's just given to me. I need to figure out how to work around that. Um, But Cosmos, you can actually say, like, actually, like, fuck that. I don't like the way it works. We're going to have it work in a completely different way. Um, And there's a nice framework around it, so it's pretty easy to do. To to add on
2: to that that point
1: about the, the gas,
2: like, once you break out of this mode where, oh, everything that I have to do has to be, like, run, you know, inside of this, like the same execution environment as all of this, like random untrusted code. Um, There's a lot of flexibility that you can have. Um, You know, as the, if you're writing like uh, a native module or component of the chain, you're now just like writing software and you can make that software fast in ways that are not possible for this kind of fully um generic kind of uh vm thing especially at a vm where you're constrained by you know all of these legacy design decisions right um so as, as an example for number um you know we do cycle our detection in as part of the the protocol but um when we're going and like having the, the chain go and look to see whether there's any mispricing that needs to be corrected, we can just like do a like big, like graph traversal where we explore every branch of the decision tree in like a parallel fork of the chain state and, you know, do all of this like multi-core stuff. It's all native rust code. Like actually computers are pretty fast. Um, and and so the being in an environment where it is possible for somebody to kind of control each uh layer of the stack i think causes there to be a lot more openness to like oh what if we just didn't do that or like this isn't actually a given this is just a thing that we made up uh and we could do a different thing um you know, potentially with a lot more effort, right? So there's always that trade-off of like, how much additional effort are you gonna spend um, versus like, what kind of control do you get? But I think that there is more of an idea of like, the software that the chain runs is actually, you know, the thing that we're creating and not just this, this given thing.
0: Hey guys, quick break from the show here. I want you to imagine something for me. Imagine swapping two stable coins on chain paying $0 in gas, and instead getting a rebate of $2,000. This is something that's actually happened on-chain. To understand how, I want to introduce and thank this season's sponsor, Rook. Zooming out for a second, the current state of affairs in MEV is billions of dollars so far have been extracted from users' pockets using MEV. Rook is coming in and saying, enough is enough. Blockchain should drive value to their users and the applications they use. It is time to leave the hobbyist era behind us if we want to move forward and we want to get this right. That's why Rook has built a custom blockchain settlement network and it's one that gives you full control over the entire transaction lifecycle. Today you can connect to an open source Rook node. The Rook protocol will automatically match, bundle and auction your orders and transactions in seconds with zero gas overhead. Also, any MEV that's discoverable along the way will be returned to you, the user. Created as a collaboration between the industry's top mechanism designers and MEV engineers, Rook was built from the ground up to be scalable, safe, and programmable. You can get your own mempool, choose searchers and builders, and link your mempool with others to discover even more MEV. You can define how the MEV is shared and delivered as well. And Rook basically process anything from transactions to meta transactions and more. This is the way that blockchains basically should have been from day one. So if you're a user listening to this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to your wallets, go to your favorite app, your node provider and say, Hey, I want you to be working with these guys Rook. I want the MEV that I create to be redistributed back to me. If you're a developer and you want to stay ahead of the game, the best way to do that is to follow them on Twitter. They are at Rook or even better yet, slide into their DMS. They are lightning responsive. They'll get you set up today and if you do slide into those dms as always please tell them that i sent you completely in agreement guys and i think that was one of the the ideas that i wanted to dig into just in terms of chains being allowed to have their own opinion so maybe in the case of something like osmosis and the ProtoRed module that you've helped develop area at skip it's we think back running is okay and we want some of those proceeds to flow to the protocol itself or in the case of penumbra we really care about privacy. And that's why we want to trade on Penumbra and just building that into the the user experience. I, I want to shift here because I think the the question of sovereignty and owning these decisions becomes very interesting in the world of kind of the interchain. And this is where maybe I want to dive a little bit into cross domain MEV. So we've talked about this a little bit in Ethereum, uh, specifically within the context of layer twos and rollups on Ethereum, that to me, it looks a little bit, there are definitely parallels that you could draw to the Cosmos, right? Where you kind of, instead of having everything being composable on ETH main chain, you have many different rollups, and suddenly you're entering kind of this asynchronous environment that looks very similar to what Cosmos looks like today. And I actually got super excited about, I'm sure people have been thinking about this for years, but the first time I really start to get excited about cross domain MEV was the Atom 2.0 white paper that, you know, uh, Sam Park helped to to write. I know he's with you guys at Skip that, Barry. Um, But I I would love to sort of get your guys' thoughts in general about just maybe as a jumping off point about cross-domain MEV. Just what are your kind of thoughts as as a high level? Is it this kind of interesting opportunity? Is it more technically unfeasible than people think? And then I want to kind of
1: get into, um, you know, this idea of sovereignty in this world. So I I can give my high level take very quickly which is I think a lot of cross domain MEV so there's you can you mean broadly maybe two things uh, which is one might be executing an arbitrage strategy where one leg of that strategy is on one chain uh, or one market another chain is on another or another leg is on another chain or in another market and I think that's usually what people mean And then uh, number two is you could could mean specifically actually doing these things, but more complex versions of them, and we can somehow get atomicity across these chains. I think atomicity is a big thing that people get interested and excited about. Uh, I'd say one on the first one. So we do a lot of uh, data collection today in Cosmos to try to understand, okay, how large is the cross-chain arbitrage opportunity? Like, is it worthwhile to try to build the kind of complicated systems that you might need to get pure, honest-to-God cross-chain animosity, which do look very, very complicated as you as you get more into it. Um, and what we've seen is the vast majority of arbitrage uh, is sex to DEX. So the vast majority of... Uh, even even for Cosmos tokens, which are on average less liquid on centralized exchanges than big Ethereum tokens are, and, uh, you know, traded in many different venues on different chains throughout the Cosmos ecosystem, centralized to decentralized exchange arbitrage is still much larger. And like what happens is a centralized exchange moves and then all of these different chains will, in their local markets, follow, like move towards what that centralized exchange is, except for Osmo and Osmosis, where the centralized exchange usually follows Osmosis just because liquidity is so much deeper on Osmo. Uh, so like, I think at a high level, of, like people are really, really excited about this I think it's a long ways off. And I think this will probably be the case for a long time because as a trader, uh, if you have a continuous time market that you're trading against, uh, or if you have the choice between a continuous time market with with really deep liquidity and a a, um, not continuous time market where you're going to have to lock in your order for a longer period of time and liquidity on average is lower and there's a lot of bespoke things depending on what chain you're trading against, you're going to see mostly people just continuing to do this sex dex arbitrage for a while and like that's okay um, so like i think i one to add like a crypto twitter needs to, like chill out about cross domain and cross chain mev and like think more about like, realizing that like binance is the most important chain in the world <laughs> right now uh as far as arbitrage goes uh so that's one big thing i say. i think what we like to think about more just on a day-to-day basis at skip is ways we can build cross-chain systems that make multiple chains feel like one chain by leveraging off-chain actors to do interesting or difficult tasks that occur at the boundaries of different chains so this might mean you know performing some kind of cross-chain swap where all you want to do is sign one transaction you have you one kind of token on chain a and you and want to end up with a different token on chain b and you don't want to have to worry about how it gets there you just want like whatever the canonical version token is i think there's a lot of interesting things around pushing complexity to off-chain actors. We were talking about the boundaries of chains. It could also be much simpler things, which is just like, hey, I have this transaction that I want to execute on uh, Juno or on Neutron or something, and I don't have the gas token there. So, like, can somebody execute it for me, uh, and I will I will pay, right? <laughs> so, like, there's a lot of UX things that we try to spend our time thinking about because I think those things are real right now, and there's whole question around relayer incentivization that we could talk about. Uh, IBC relayers or other kind of cross chain messaging protocol relayers, which are important and in many protocols fully unincentivized, who could get up to malicious MEV things or could maybe be leveraged uh in the MEV supply chain, if we want to call it that, to like again continue to improve UX. So I like to reframe this as like, you know from cross-chain arbitrage to this question of what are the problems like what are the ux problems that arise when you exist in a world where users are sometimes going to be on one chain and sometimes going to be on another chain and how can how can we use off-chain actors to solve those as opposed to just like if i could control state on like arbitrum and on ethereum mainnet like how rich can i be uh which is like probably honestly not that rich right now (laughs) but i'll i'll pause there completely agree with
0: everything that you said, Barry. And actually that specific point about sex to dex arbitrage is definitely been something that we've been focusing on a lot this season. And the fact is the price discovery happens at on Binance now. So that's by 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 virtue of that being the fact, that's where most of the arbitrage is, is sort of available. But let let's sort of take your point and Go run with that here and say, okay, on something like in the Cosmos ecosystem, where we have many of these different chains that have sort of these different rules and opinions, we want to find a way for users to not, we want to abstract that complexity away. Um, And I think that's where I I kind of want to dive into this point, because I think rollups on Ethereum are kind of undergoing that same battle right now, um, where it's a very, very analogous sort of situation, where users don't want to have to think about the fact that, you know, I have to migrate in between something like Optimism and Arbitrum, and I want some sort of communication and standards of interoperability. And that also kind of gets into where that's really manifesting in Ethereum right now is this discussion around decentralizing the sequencer set or shared sequencer sets, right? And there are obvious implications for cross-domain MEV there. And this is what I really wanted to ask both of you here. There's was a very interesting, we had this exact same conversation in Ethereum land on rollups. And the, the question that I uh, think Hasu asked uh, Robert Miller was, is it the is it the the fate, the inevitable fate of every blockchain to be influenced by the sequencing of another chain? And I wanted to get your guys' perspective on that, and maybe Barry, I could pick on you first here, because this is where that cop that idea of sovereignty comes in that's very core to the philosophy and ethos of Cosmos is being having an opinion or being sovereign and not being impacted. by by the decision of other chains. But as you, to your point, as you kind of move in and try to increase the interoperability in between all of these other chains, you know, to what degree is it appropriate to be beholden to the decision that other chains make? You know, at what point are you giving away some of your sovereignty, you know, in uh, in favor of uh, compatibility? I would love to know, like, what you think about that tension.
1: Um, I'm happy to try to answer that, but I actually think Maybe a more interesting first version of this question is to like turn it on on Henry and just sort of hear Henry your thoughts on uh you could Penumbra be a roll-up? Could it participate the regardless of it's whether it's roll up, like would you use a shared sequence or how would you think about these things? Like how do you guys think about sequencing relative to what your what your product is and the value props that you're trying to offer users? Um and then maybe I can try to get my answer, but feels like Henry has more more appropriate more appropriate thoughts. oh i mean i don't know that i have like a
2: super big take on this i guess i feel like the boundaries of like like what is an l1 what is an l2 like what is a roll up i don't know um i think like there's various technical aspects that you could point to to distinguish all of those things but it's not clear to me how much that matters to the end user experience and i think from the end user perspective um having a bunch of different l2s actually does look a lot like having a bunch of different chains because all that an l2 is is a distinct chain that has some kind of like special way to anchor itself to another chain One thing that I think is kind of underappreciated about IBC is that IBC is actually this like very, very flexible and generic um, sort of cross-chain timestamping system as a side effect of doing messaging, right? So in in IBC, you have chain A and chain B, and they're running some kind of clients of each other. But what that means is that like chain A is going to have inside of its state here is my view as chain A up the chain B state. But the chain B state also includes like, hey, as chain B, here's my view of chain C or chain D or whatever. And so you end up with this uh, picture where it's like, it's almost like you have one big sort of meta blockchain that has all of these like localized little neighborhoods. And from each one, you know, you can verify state Anywhere else in the ecosystem, but potentially with some kind of like light cone of verification, where you know, until this has been relayed across however many different pieces, I haven't pulled those latest changes of you know chain B or C D E whatever into my sort of like local like cone of verifiability. Um and from that perspective. You know, like what is a roll-up, what is not. I'm not saying that the, the trust distinctions are not meaningful, but I would say that they're not the only thing that that matters. Um I do think that there is a kind of interesting future where uh and, and a thing that we're we're hoping to build into Penumbra where um we generalize it to be more of a a kind of interchain privacy layer retake the kind of asynchronous zk execution that we built just for the one use case of having uh, a native dex and then expand that to like well why can't i interact with the public chain state of say you know uh osmosis or ethereum or whatever um from the shielded pool of penumbra right um And so I think that in the long term, you know, what it looks like in Ethereum, what it looks like in, in Cosmos, there's going to be some kind of convergent evolution because a lot of the problems end up being like fundamentally the same. Um, I think that like IBC between rollups um, seems like a really obvious thing to do because um, you know, it turns out that like one of the hardest parts of doing cross-chain messaging is not actually just the, like, how do you verify the state root part, but also like, how do you have like, N different chains all agree on common data formats. Right. And that's the part that is like, not very like cool and sexy. And we're doing this like awesome, like moon math to make it work. It's like, how do I like parse a protobuf? Um, but that actually is like also a quite hard engineering problem. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think that there's definitely going to be some kind of convergence in, in the future
1: there. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. I think, like, uh, it, it's, it's kind of, like, interesting being a little bit removed from the center of a lot of Ethereum's roll-up conversations and roll-up proliferation stuff today, but living in Cosmos, because, like, when Ethereum people talk about this stuff, they're like, oh, like, we can have, like, atomic cross-chain, like, sequencing and 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 like you'll be able to start a flash line on one chain and end it on a different chain and like all these things and i'm like you guys have no idea how hard like basic shit is about to get for you uh if you don't have good standards um and you're gonna have like you you have like the old uh meme about like like a thousand different standards are gonna arise um and i i think like when you talk to cosmos people they're always like yeah like the basic shit is what you should really focus on and if you get that right like you're going to start to have more users and better user experience you're, you're going to build up from there um, so I, I think it'll be interesting to see this all play out like, <laughs> uh, like Henry I think one of my big takes is, is a lot of this stuff you, is going to start to look more like Cosmos which uh, I think will be fun and, and we'll have some exciting things to hopefully share and to teach based on what we've learned uh, in a multi-chain world to touch on the question of like, is it uh, the fate of all blockchains to be influenced by the sequencing of another chain? I would mostly just say, I hope not. Uh, like, that seems bad. Like, there, there's this... I I I think like, there's this vision of having a single chain that can... Uh, is like the hub of MEV and block building, and where searchers go and where users go to express their intents, uh, which that's a that's a really hard social coordination problem. It's a hard technical problem. It's it's um, I think it's like roughly in line with the swap idea, right? Um, I think it's a pretty cool vision. Uh, I think probably with the the version of this that we're most interested in is one that is much more. Um, much more limited, I'd say, and much more opt-in uh, and much more focused on sovereignty where, you know, when it is economically reasonable and good for chains chance to coordinate, they may choose to do so for brief periods of time with somewhat limited guarantees. Uh, and that I think a lot of this cross-chain coordination is going to happen over something that looks like IBC. Uh, I don't... So, I don't know if it's the fate of all chain. I really don't think it is. Like I, I think these these takes usually overestimate the value of um, coordination, or actually like rather probably like underestimate the cost of of any kind of coordination. Uh, like if you, if there is a one chain that is like helping to sequence a large percentage of Ethereum blocks and uh, you know blocks, perhaps that chain is going to have to do a lot of really different weird shit to sequence a number of blocks uh, and number validators are going to have to think it's like really important for them to participate to <laughs> to to opt into that chain and 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 like they're going to have other things that they're thinking about as as well so i i'm generally quite skeptical of, of those kinds of mechanisms and and uh, i think the the part of uh, this vision that i do think is most interesting is around the idea of uh, intents insofar as um, maybe having a place you go to express hey I want to go buy this NFT on another chain uh, and I want it to transfer to a third place or I want to go to my special NFT wallet and basic because basic stuff can become challenging in a cross chain world I think like simple intent fulfillment where somebody an off chain act can come and say okay I'm going to make this happen for you like you give me the permissions Uh, or maybe an Henry's model like people who care about privacy just be able to go to Penumbra and say hey I, I you know I, I want to make this swap on this other dex or I, I want to go do this or I want to transfer my tokens between these two chains like that experience of having one place they go actually does seem really really good to me um and that's that's pretty exciting long term that's a little bit less about sequencing um and though the like sequencing layer does matter a lot there we try to be very oriented, as I said, towards this vision of like, okay, what gets hard when you have a lot of chains? And like, how can we use some of the tools that people usually associate with MEV to help fix those problems?
2: I guess one other thing I would add is there's sort of this question, okay, what does it mean to actually be influenced, right? Which is another sort of way where depending on your reading of the question, you could end up with like quite different answers. Either you have a kind of a more minimal sense of like, Uh, like a, a more literal like protocol sequencing like is this chain really being sequenced by this other one and i think the the cost of doing that coordination uh may actually be quite high as you know per Barry's point but if you're talking about a more general kind of like economic influence then you know in some sense like the answer is i think always yes but that doesn't necessarily mean that something isn't a sovereign chain or if it does mean that, then, you know, no chain is sovereign. Like, you know, in some sense, you could say like, look, ETH has this other consensus mechanism, which is that, um, you know, Circle decides like what the canonical ETH chain is. And if they want to have a different ETH chain, then like, you know, that's kind of, gonna be a big deal um and people have had you know this is not obviously a new insight right like there's a lot of discussions about like okay what does it mean to have um you know so much uh, of the economic value be tied to these like off-chain deposits held by some actor but if you're stepping away from the kind of very literal, like protocol sequencing question of, you know, what does it mean for one thing to influence another thing, then you can already see those discussions that are happening about, um, like off-chain assets, and, uh, as being another instance of that that same kind of dilemma. Yeah, I guess you could take this
0: all the way up to its highest sort of philosophical level and say, is anything that exists, at least in our world, truly independent of something else. You know, I mean, even at the highest level, something like the U.S. has its full sovereignty, right? But we are also somewhat dependent on what other nation states in the world do. And I guess you've got to kind of map that analogy to to blockchains and say, where where does, you know, how do you draw that line, right? Like, I know there's a lot of focus on kind of the fork choice rule as something that's sort of a, a technical requirement, but then there's also, you know, there are also sort of softer economic reasons to be influenced by by other chains. Guys, I, I want to make sure there's we could, I'm sure, you know, keep going. Uh, you know, talk about this for another two full hours, but I would love to, um, just because we're a little time constrained here, just get your thoughts on sort of privacy. And maybe Henry, I could call on you here. I know you've sort of brought up ABCI2, I think is the um, you know, the upcoming change in could, could, could you maybe just give an overview of what that is, why it's an important development, and then maybe segue into some of the sort of cool um, implications that has for privacy, at least on Penumbra?
2: Yeah. So ADCI is um, an API that was made originally for communication between Tendermint and the Cosmos SDK. But the idea when they made it was, well rather than doing the thing that like pretty much everybody else did in like the sort of 2017, 2018 cycle uh, of coupling the consensus engine to the chain, what if we decoupled those things and said, we're gonna have a generic interface for, here's the application that's replicated by the consensus mechanism, and here's the consensus mechanism itself, and those things can be somewhat distinct. Um, so that's the point of ABCI. It's making the consensus engine pluggable. Um, and in the first version of, of ABCI, which is what's currently used in Cosmos, um, the consensus engine is basically like telling the app okay, here's the stuff that occurred. And that's just a given, right? And that is very useful, just for you know being able to ship a chain and, and so on. Um, but there's a lot of cool stuff that you could do if you had the app have some way to extend hooks down into the consensus stack. And so there's been an ongoing project, first called uh, ABCI++, and for various uh, reasons got um, kind of re-split up and. And renumbered into ABCI one and ABCI two. Um and basically those changes provide additional hooks for the application to have greater control over what's going on in the consensus layer. So there's two two big um sort of uh things that are that that you can do. One is this idea of prepare or process proposal, which is the idea that um, instead of just having the consensus engine deliver to the app like here's stuff that occurred, you know, deal with it. um, You could give the app a way to control, um, you know, what block a um, a validator is going to propose or um, you know whether a validator is going to vote up or down on a particular proposal. So you can think of this as kind of being like, almost like a native way to do um, PBS, but where you're having the uh, application actually also be a block builder. Um, you know, and maybe the app chooses to delegate that to some you know off chain actor or something, or maybe it chooses to. Do parts of the block building itself. But by having that interface, the application can kind of have full control of like exactly what it wants to do there. Um, so, as you can imagine, you know, that's already quite powerful. Um, but the second really cool thing that is coming uh, later in, in ABCI2 is uh, this idea of vote extensions, which is basically a way to have each. Uh, validator who's participating in the consensus process uh, include some extra data as a kind of extension to their vote of do I you know approve of this block or not and that means that you can have the validator set also be performing uh, MPC so you can have the validator set do like oh we're going to do a, a key generation or we're going to do like threshold decryption And this is really powerful because now, you know, uh, going all the way back to the beginning of the episode, one of the things Barry mentioned was this idea of like, you know, you have these validators and the validators can do more things, right? Part of that is because the validators are not just socially aligned, but also more economically aligned with the chain. Like you can slash them um, with more impact than you could do on, on Ethereum, say. But the point is that you know, you have these actors and they're acting on behalf of the chain and so you can ask them to do more stuff. And in particular, you could ask them to do some kind of like online, you know, coordinated cryptography that you couldn't necessarily have each individual user participate in because like, you know, maybe I just want to send my transaction or maybe I, you know, would be open to doing some fancy cryptography, but like my Wi-Fi cut out and so I'm, you know, not participating anymore and so on. All these things that make it difficult to sort of push that um, computation out to the the end user, you can have the validators act as like, here is this like, you know, committee of participants who are economically and socially aligned with the protocol. And so we can get them to do useful stuff. And Threshold Crypto is, I think, the the most obvious, coolest example of this on um, so in the future, you know, Cosmos chains are going to be able to do uh, threshold encryption for transactions so that you can do uh, some committed reveal type execution. And for Penumbra, we can actually take that a step further um, and build something that, that we call flow encryption, which is a way to encrypt, not, you know, the entire transaction, because for us, the transaction is already shielded. So it's already um, not revealing a lot of information about, um, you know, who is doing it or, or what. Um, but maybe somebody wants to interact with the public state. Like, I want to make a trade, right? Um, using flow encryption, we can say, we want to have these sort of, flows of value between different parts of the system, like here's value that's flowing into a batch swap, or here's value that's flowing into delegations to some validator, or so on. And we want to be able to have the system see only the aggregate, but not be able to see any individual user's contribution to that flow. And We can do that using uh, threshold encryption, where the threshold encryption is also additively homomorphic, and verifiable. So in my transaction, I can prepare this encrypted contribution of like, here's my amount that I'm going to put into this batch swap. And once all of those transactions get included in a block, the validators can sum up all of the encrypted contributions of everybody's uh, batch swaps. And then decrypt only the batch total. And so now I and everybody else who's in the same batch as me get like not just this sort of commit and reveal privacy up until inclusion, we get a much stronger like long-term privacy because the only data that's publicly revealed is the aggregate of all of our user intent. So it's sort of a way to have private coordination between all the users of the system without even them having to interact with each other. And and Henry, just just because honestly it's probably
0: yeah, you know, a little criminal that we haven't discussed threshold encryption um and, and the implications that much on Ethereum so far. Could you just underline again for for the for the for the listener, why, you know, the way that it's done on Penumbra is like very different from the way that it's done on on Ethereum today. And maybe if you could talk about sort of the the information advantage that decryptor gets on ethereum just to specifically underscore the mev implication of that as well
2: on on ethereum or or some other place where you have this kind of transaction by transaction granularity um and the transaction is this kind of generic blob of of execution um basically the only thing you can do with threshold encryption there is encrypt the transactions contents and effects up until the point where you're going to include it in a block. And then at that point you decrypt it and the whole system can see exactly what the transaction does in order to execute it. Um, And so as a user, um, that threshold encryption is not giving you any long-term privacy. It's only giving you privacy up until the point that your transaction is included in a block. And that also poses some difficulties for um, the system. Like, you know, if you can't verify that the transaction is valid before you commit to including it, you know, what do you do? Um, how do you account for gas if you don't know what the contents are, etc.? Um, on Penebra, on the other hand, because all of the transaction contents are already shielded, except for here is this you know, anonymous contribution to some part of the public state. The only thing you have to encrypt is like, what is the input amount to my, uh, of my transaction's contribution to some batch? And so if you're a, a decryptor, let's say you know there's like a malicious coalition of that, um, the amount that you can learn by illicitly decrypting transactions is much less, right? You don't get to learn like, hey, here's exactly this particular account that's doing stuff. You don't get to see any other details other than like, this is the, the contribution. Um, And it also, I think, it, it means that in this sort of like longer term picture, um, maybe a better way to say it is, When when people talk about MEV and exploitation, a lot of the time it feels like they're talking about just this sort of first order thing because seeing how people are like, you know, rearranging blocks they're produced is kind of the most obvious and detectable way to see that people are exploiting excess information disclosure from other people's transactions. But really that's just the kind of the tip of the iceberg of possible adversarial behavior that you could do on chain if i can see your entire history of your trading strategy um i can probably get a lot of information to use against you even if i'm not controlling you know exactly what your um you know transaction inclusion is right like let's say you're doing uh market making i can look at all of your trades i can see what your strategy is maybe i can predict. Like what's the one percent of the time that you're gonna do a mispricing? And at that moment, you know, come in and really will And I don't need to have, you know, control over the sequencing of your transactions to do that. I just need to be able to see your entire history. Um, and so I think really, you know, the current kind of discussions about MUD are, are really looking at just this kind of like first order um, effects. But even in a world where you can perfectly solve all of those with threshold encryption or SGX or, you know, whatever else you haven't actually really solved the problem of kind of excess information disclosure on shape. Like the dark forest is still there. It just moves up like one level of difficulty. I
0: completely agree there. And then I know guys, we've we've got to wrap up and it's tough because I know we could probably go for another couple hours on this, but I guess, uh, Barry, any any sort of uh, you know comment to or response to what Henry just said regarding privacy, or any just sort of any way any anything that you want to say to bookend the conversation, or kind of a, a takeaway that you want to leave listeners with?
1: I guess on the privacy thing, I think Henry put it super well. I, you skip as a company from day one has been getting comparisons to Flashbots, but we try to take a very different. Uh, cultural and technical approach insofar as our goal is to try to give chains more control over MEV, how it gets extracted, what gets extracted, how it gets distributed. And so that leaves us in a position where we're, we all are and always have been very favorable, very favorable to things that try to improve privacy to try to protect users from MEV. We're going to be working on the threshold decryption schemes that uh, Henry was talking about for osmosis as a part of our our uh, product partnership with them. So, you know, in, in general, I'm also much less qualified to speak on privacy and encryption than Henry is. So I'll, I'll leave a lot of that to him. I will say in MEV very broadly, whether you're talking about encryption of transactions or just trying to reduce the number of actors who have access to any particular kind of information about a trade or... um sort of anything related to the to the life cycle of a swap there is always this trade-off between um what kind of information can i can i give people uh and how many how many actors am i giving that information to versus how what is the user experience that i'm going to have Uh, and i i think these things can come in tension uh for example like when we think about order flow auctions, right? There's, there's always this question of, okay, if I have an intent to swap, I can do what MevBlocker blocker does and just tell everybody, hey, I want to swap, you know, this much ETH uh, for this much DAI. Like, who can give me the best price possible? Um, and we do nothing to protect that person. We do nothing to limit that information or try to obfuscate the actual intent. And then that potentially has leakage considerations for. Who um, actually, what what dexes get swapped on. And and so, and you can make that intent more specific as well. We can say, okay, I, w- I want to trade ETH for DAI on this particular exchange, like, or in this Uniswap pool. And that's even worse because now, as a searcher, a searcher can go and they can see that and they say, well, I'm not going to bid to back run you, but I'll just front run you. I know you're going to come in, you push the price up a little bit, and I'll, I'll sell after you. I can do that probabilistically. Uh, and then there are much more complicated systems that try to uh, limit that information flow quite a bit more. So Mev Share tries to say, okay, instead of just broadcasting your intent to trade, to everyone will allow you to program the specific piece of information that we share with searchers. By default, we won't broadcast anything and searchers will just have to like blindly submit bundles that attempt to interact with your trade. So like the order flow example, right? there's, there's a few different ways of going about this. And system probably produces uh, or potentially produces better prices for users, but at the cost of this like overhead of complexity and um is just more difficult for searchers okay. to interact with. And so then the question is, where do we go with this trade-off? I think you'll see different systems make different choices. MedBlocker gets used quite a bit right now. You know, like it's very easy for people to interact with. Uh, I think a lot of the the encryption work that henry's doing and that like potentially more broadly the tools of app chains allow you to do kind of gets around some of this this trade-off like the the fully homomorphic morphic encryption henry, that henry was mentioning means well actually we can just use shielded information um in our computation we, we don't actually have to make this black and white decision which is pretty cool it's like a like the infinity stones you know like we're just infinite power um so i think uh, FHE like fully general FHE is something that everyone in MEV is very excited about. As a result, because you look at this fundamental trade off, and you're like, "Oh, here's like, here's a way around it." Um, and so, there's smaller, you know, more practical pieces of that that I think the number team are taking and, and, and implementing now, which is pretty cool. Um, more broadly, if I were to say one thing, I want people to walk away from the conversation with, it's that like, uh, Cosmos is, looks like a very different ecosystem than Ethereum does, uh, not just in terms of how MEV gets distributed and extracted, but also how people build and interact with blockchains. And Ethereum with the proliferation of rollups is going to start to look a lot more like Cosmos <laughs> does well now. Uh and in Cosmos, you can be concerned about cross-domain MEV, but I think it's much more useful to be concerned about what is what is the UX that I would want to achieve, like from a God's eye point of view about how people do different things across different chains and how can we think about MEV as improving that uh, and off-chain actors as being responsible for improving that as opposed to like just trying to take money from different people throughout the stack. Uh, So I think, and like another thing for listeners who are like mostly in Ethereum or like mostly just live in one chain or, or operate on mainnet, like go see what it's like to interact with a bunch of different chains at the same time. Go like try to take some money out on osmosis and like go to stargaze and buy an nft and come back to ethereum um i think you'll find that like there are there are things you can do that you didn't think were possible and then there are some things that are unexpectedly frustrating uh and i think that kind of experience be very informative for how people think about and and build rollups guys uh unfortunately
0: that is all the time we have barry and henry thank you guys so much for coming on this was an amazing episode and i'm sure our listeners will take a lot away so thanks guys once again and hopefully we can uh, do this again soon
1: yeah thanks for having us
2: all right thanks so much